He said, I like this kid. And a week later, they called me and said, would you like to work one week with Frank Sinatra in Atlantic City at the Golden Nugget? And I thought, yeah, uh, hopefully I'll get my picture taken with him. I'll hang it in every bar back in Chicago. <laughs> and that would be it. But on the second night appearing with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I, I can remember like it was yesterday. In the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down. And he said to me, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, you know. Hello and welcome to Here's to Life with Tori Reid, presented by Victory and Noble, a storytelling company with executive producer Patrick Howe. Here's to Life with Tori Reid was brought to you in part by... We are pleased to share that we are staying healthy and hydrated throughout this edition of Here's to Life with Tori Reid, courtesy of our partners at Vivro Water, a sustainable solutions company that mirrors our commitment to clarity, focus, and a better world. Vivro's water solutions for business have already helped divert tens of millions of wasteful plastic bottles from landfills and waterways. Every day, Vivro systems across the globe help forward-thinking companies transform their own on-premise water into a source for pure and reliable filtered hydration. Let Vivro help you and your business leave a legacy of stewardship, health, and wellness that will literally make you feel good inside. Go to VivroWater.com, V-I-V-R-E-A-U, water.com for more information. I adore this man. He's genuine, funny as hell, salt of the earth. What I say God was thinking of when he created goodness. Tom Dreesen, comedian, a comedian's comedian, a motivational speaker, a philanthropist, and best of all, he's my Uncle Tom. <laughs> 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 Should we explain that, Tori? Yes, let's begin with explaining why I call you Uncle Tom. Well, because your father and I, before you were born, were partners in a comedy team. We were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. And when you mm -hmm. came along, you were this beautiful, adorable baby, which you still are. And I said to you always, I'm your Uncle Tom. Whenever I picked you up and hugged you, I'm your Uncle Tom. So that's what you thought was true. And it is true. I am your Uncle Tom. I'm not married to your father's sister or anything like that, but <laughs> but I am your uncle. And I've always loved that. And, I, and I'll tell one more quick story of, you know, the story I'm going to tell that mm -hmm. years go by and your dad and I were no longer a comedy team, but we wrote a book and we were on tour and we went to Norfolk State College, your father's, where your father graduated. And we were going to talk to the students that day. And be, prior to that, they had a brunch. And you hadn't seen me for like a year. And I was standing at the brunch with six black college professors. We were getting our, our, our food and we were going to sit down. And you were across the room and you walked in. You hadn't seen me. You hollered, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and these professors turned around and looked at you. And I said, she, she's talking to me. She's talking to me. <laughs> uh, and you ran up and I hugged you. I love, yes, yes. North <clears throat> State. I'll never forget that. Let's talk magic because you're truly a magical spirit and soul. You spent many, many years on the stage with the great and beloved Frank Sinatra. 
And I know it was magical for you. You've written about it. You talk about it. Let's start with that part of your life. Well, I'll start with this cup that I'm drinking my hot tea. It's a picture of Frank socking me in the jaw. He always, uh, he would, he never, only once in his life as he was dying, he said, I love you, Tommy. But he, he would never say love you. He'd say, love you, pal. And he had socked me in the jaw. He'd go, love you, pal. And he'd give me a, a shot. So, you know, that's, if you see this cup, that's what it's about. <laughs> nice. Prior to touring with Frank Sinatra, after your dad and I, the comedy team split up, you know, I, I uh, came out here to the West Coast with a, I had a wife and three kids back in Chicago, and I was struggling to try to get on at the comedy store so I could be seen to get to the Tonight Show. And all that happened. Uh, you know, I, I ended up getting my opportunity to uh, perform for the talent coordinators of the Tonight Show after about almost a year at the comedy store. And after that first appearance on The Tonight Show, a whole world opened up to me. I started touring with Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Smokey Robinson, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Natalie Cole, uh, Tony Orlando and Don, uh, Frankie Avalon, James Darren. All these singers were asking me to open for them because I could work clean, and they had family audiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyhow, so and then and all of that led to one day while I was touring with Smokey Robinson, we were at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harrow's. And after my show one night, I ran over, as fate would have it, uh, I was fate. I was there seven days at Caesars with Smokey. I could, could have gone over to see Frank on any one of those days. For some reason, I chose this Wednesday night. I said, after my show, I'm just going to run over. I didn't change out of my stage clothes. And I ran over to Harris Hotel. I was running into the showroom. And uh, the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me. And he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And he said, Tommy, come here, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. And he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, very powerful man in, in, in our business. And he said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that a million times. And right. he winked at the <laughs> vice president. And I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid. If I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> And he started, he did what you did. He started laughing and he said, I like this kid. And a week later, they called me and said, would you like to work one week with Frank Sinatra in Atlantic City at the Golden Nugget? And I thought, yeah, uh, hopefully I'll get my picture taken with him. I'll hang it in every bar back in Chicago. <laughs> and that would be it. But on the second night, appearing with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I, I can remember like it was yesterday. In the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down. And he said to me, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah. Right. You know? And <laughs> it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year all over the country, appearing in front of 20,000 people, 40,000 people in Hawaii, this incredible career, flying in this private jet all over the world, uh, you know, also staying in his home, this beautiful compound he had down in Rancho Mirage in the desert, yes. and uh, staying there six times a year, a friendship that I, I, I miss. I miss him every day of my life. I was a pallbearer yeah. at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral, and, uh, yeah. and it, it was just a great experience. What do you miss about him most? When I first started touring with him, he was the boss of this tour, obviously. Mm-hmm. He paid me and, you know, and I had a certain assignment to do to get the audience up every night. 
for him. So he was the boss. Later, he became like a friend, you know, a buddy, a pal. And we would hang out, you know, till the wee hours of the morning because he never went to bed till the sun came up. Then later in his life, he became like a father to me. He would give me advice when I was going through a divorce. He, he counseled me. Uh, he'd said to me one day, I can't give you any advice on marriage, but I can on divorce. <laughs> he was married three times. But he, he you know, he was, he, he was, you know, that kind of person. And also, it was a world that's hard to describe. Yeah. There was never a dull moment. You know, it's time to go on the road. A limousine would pull up in front of my house. Two big guys would carry my luggage down. They'd carry me down if, if I wanted to go down. You know, they'd drive you <laughs> right to the airport, right to the tarmac, right to the aircraft. You'd get out of the, out of the limo. Your luggage was all being loaded. You'd get aboard that private jet. And the moment Frank put his foot on that on that plane, the pilot's name was Johnny Spots. He said, let's go, Spots. And we'd take off down the runway. There was no pre-flight. All that better be done. All that fueling. You know, Frank was an yeah. impatient guy. Mm. You would, we'd take off. Him and I would be engaged in conversation. We'd land in some city. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. We'd do the show, finish the show. We'd leave there. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the private jet. We'd be flying over the venue. People weren't even in their cars yet. We're on our way to the next city. You know, it was, it was a world that I never dreamed that I would be in, uh, and to be a part of. I, 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 I miss that. I miss the excitement of that. I miss, uh, making him laugh. I love to make him laugh because he they called him old blue eyes for a reason. He had crystal, crystal blue eyes, almost hypnotic. You know, a couple times on a plane while he's talking to me, the light would be shining through. And I'd go, wow, look at those eyes. I mean, that's why they call him old blue eyes. You know, he he, yeah. he was fun to be around. I love making him laugh. Uh, I, I, you know, the excitement of that world. You'd go on stage every night and you'd be performing. You go, oh, look, there's the president of the United States. <laughs> it's a, oh, look, there's there's Sidney Portier. Oh, look, there's Gregory Peck. Oh, look, Quincy Jones is in here. You're performing, but you're seeing all these these incredible yes. people. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I miss, that that excitement. So I miss that. Well, now I know you told me in the past, and I know you gained so much wisdom from him and you got some advice, but I remember you telling me he was a stickler for time. Oh, this might be the greatest, arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Forget about that he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest pop singer of all time, but also he won the Academy Award. He was a brilliant actor, uh, philanthropist, all these things, you know, uh, but this very important guy was never, ever late. Never. It, you know, when, if you told Frank Sinatra, would you be here at nine o'clock? He was there at five to nine. And if you weren't there at 901, he might be taken off. You know, he, he always respected your time. And he told yeah. me one time, he said, Tommy, if they tell you to be in their office at 915 and you show up at 920, you're saying my time is more important than yours. I don't respect your time. You know, and he said, it's very important to do that. And, and that, that's just one of the many things that he taught me coming out of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, we were on our way to do a gig. We were in New York City. Coming out, we went out the back way. Frank couldn't go out the front. He'd get mobbed. So we're going out the back way, heading for the limousine to go do a show. And a woman, the security was taking us to the car. And a woman started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And the doorman told me she'd been hiding in the door for like five, five hours. Frank mm. was getting in the limo. Security was holding her back. And she was screaming, please, Mr. Sinatra. He finally turned around. He went back. He said to her, what is it? She said, my husband is home ill, terribly, terribly ill. 
And if you could sign an autograph, it would mean the world to him. He said, sure. And he signed in the autograph. And she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. And they were over $1,000 cufflinks, very expensive cufflinks. I know where he got them at. He said, thank mm-hmm. you. He finished the autograph and he took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her and said, give these to your husband. She said, no, no, I don't want them. I don't want them. I was just admiring right. them. He said, I want your husband to have these. We get in the car and I said, Frank, that was beautiful. But why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And I, I never forgot that message. You know, we talked about, he said, Tommy, Nothing we have is ours. That shirt you have on your back, if you die tomorrow, somebody else owns that shirt. You're only using it. Aristotle Onassis, he told me, he said, Tom, Aristotle Onassis had billions of dollars. He had mansions, yachts, private jets. Mm-hmm. The second he died, it all transferred to somebody else. We're yes. only using it. And yeah. he not only talked that talk, he walked that talk. Let's talk about still standing. I'm holding up the book. Yes. This is your latest book, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Now, this is your second book. How was this journey? How was this writing journey for you? Ever since I met your dad, you know, when your dad and I became America's first black and white comedy team, everywhere we went, if something poignant happened or something funny, you know, I would go home and journal it. I just write it down so I wouldn't forget this night. It wasn't mm-hmm. every night, but there were nights that were so special. I said, gosh, mm-hmm. I don't want to forget this. And I would just write it down. I would journal it. I recommend that to every person in the world. You know, mm-hmm. jur- journal every night. Go home and journal moments in your life, you know. And mm-hmm. all the while, I was thinking, wasn't thinking about writing a book at all. I was thinking mm-hmm. about one day I want to tell my children and I want to tell my grandchildren these stories to pass it on, you know. And, and so I kept, Journaling. And pretty soon I had a, a book. I mean, I mean, a, a huge book with all these wonderful stories that happened. And I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll write a book for my grandchildren that one day they're going to say to their children, they'll say, what was your grandpa like? And they say, well, here, here's, here's a book of its life, you know. Well, anyhow, uh, I get a call from two guys one day, uh, Darren Grubb and Johnny Russo. And they said, mm-hmm. I didn't know who they were, but they got a hold of my number and they contacted me. They said, Mr. Dreesen, we would like to write a book about your life. We think you've lived a very exciting life from where you came from to yes. where you are now. And I said, fellas, I've already written that book, but you know what? You could help me with the narration. I'll send you my chapters. You tell me, edit and stuff like that. And they were wonderful. They, they were wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they would say sometimes, that's real good, but can we take this one line out and put it in chapter 17 because it flows better there? And so Post Hill uh, was the publisher, and now it's in Barnes & Noble stores. Or you can get it on Amazon, uh, and they'll have it to your home in a couple of days. It's got over 355 star reviews on Amazon, so I'm real proud of nice. the book. You know? And in there, I also talk about your dad and I. Your father and I, everything that I own, I, again, fate. At the time, before I met your father, I was praying to God, saying, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing in life? This can't be it. I was going from job to job, doing well, but never feeling fulfilled. Some nights I'd be in a bar at two o'clock in the morning with my buddies and say, I don't belong in here, but where do I belong? You know, I honestly Mm -hmm. was praying. I was saying, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? And I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children, the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept I had. And I was in a civic group called the JCs that your father joined. And the very yeah. first day he walked up to me afterward, he said, I would like to work with you on that project. And I said, gee, I'm sorry. I already got a guy. His name was John DeBoer, a white friend of mine. 
And the next day, again, praying to God, the next day, John DeBoer calls me and said, you know what, Tom, I got a new job. I can't help you with that project. I said, gee, what was that other guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. I get a hold mm. of your daddy. We sit down. We ran the, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. We go into the classrooms. The program became very successful. It was considered a, a, a number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. The JCs use it through their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. They weren't teaching okay. drug education in those days at a college or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. But part of the program was getting the kids laughing. So yes. we played off of one another. We didn't have any idea about it. We just played off of one another, you know, poking fun at one another, having a good time, getting the kids laughing. Then we planted the seeds. One day, mm -hmm. a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us. No one had ever done that before. So right. we became America's first black and white comedy team. Before there were comedy clubs, we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. We worked all white nightclubs. I'd be the only white guy in an all-black area, and then we'd be in another town where Tim would be the only black guy in an all-white area. You know, But we paid dues that no other comedy team in history ever had to pay. But we yeah. had such fun together. And everything I own, everything I am, everything I'm doing today is because I met your dad. And he says the same thing, that all of our, our lives changed because we met one another and we had this kindred spirit. We have so much to learn from this man who is my Uncle Tom and the very special relationship he formed with my father, Tim Reed. They were the first black and white comedy duo in America, but my Uncle Tom just saw a man whose ambitions and dreams mirrored his own. And they made not only a fun and edgy comedy routine, they changed one another's lives. Come on, America, let's laugh with this comedy duo. We weren't trying to show the world. We weren't lecturing people or preaching. We were just having fun on stage. And that, in those days, everywhere you went in America, people say, you know, we need more discourse among the races. We need more yeah. discourse among the races. You know, we need better race relations. Well, Tim and Tom were having race relations. You know, we were having the discourse America wasn't having. And guess what they're saying today, 50 years later? You know, we need more we need better race relations. We need more discourse among the races. We were way before our time. You were. Let's talk about that because y'all were doing it in the 60s with the backdrop of, <clears throat> as you just said, racial unrest. I mean, you right now I caught a news headline and it said Will Smith smacking Chris Rock at the Oscars creates a new level of anxiety for comedians and stage performers. And I just thought of when you all were doing it, and they're saying that, and, and not to say that that isn't true, because I'm sure it is, but what you all were up against doing that in the late 60s, I mean, you faced violence on stage. I'm sure going to black clubs, they looked at dad saying, why is he here with you? And then you go to white clubs and they're like, why are you bringing him here with you? Isn't that what you guys experienced? And Oh, yeah. And we had a lot of fun experiencing it, too. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, you know, it, again, it was interesting about racism in those days. If we went to an all-black club, if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated him with a passion, 
He wasn't mad at me. He was mad at your dad for being with me. If we went to a white club where there was a redneck, he didn't like black people. He wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. But they were in the minority, I have to say. I mean, the majority of people who saw us liked us. It just, America wasn't ready for us. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was race riots in every major city in in the country, including Harvey, Illinois, had the largest in the country where I grew up Mm -hmm. in my neighborhood, one of the largest Mm -hmm. in the country. The race riots all over the country, as well as students were protesting the Vietnam War. America was in utter turmoil. And in the middle of this, we were going around the country trying to make people laugh. Now, we weren't preaching. But we went everywhere there was racial tension. We went to colleges, high schools. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail in Chicago three times. Anywhere Mm. there was racial tension, we'd go Mm -hmm. on stage and make people laugh. And I can't tell you, and your father will tell you the same thing. I can't tell you how many times in our career that after a show at one of these colleges or high schools, a young black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend that I like, and I'd like to reach out to him. But if I, if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tom, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. And then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I got a black friend that I really like, and I want to reach out to him, but the white guy's going to call me names. But after watching you guys, I'm going to go reach out to my black friend. That happened more than you'll ever know. Good is great. Sometimes in talking about success, good and great, they can be seen as antithetical. And what is so interesting about Tom Dreesen is they are synonymous, one and the same. If if, if your dad and I never get recognized for anything, I'll take those moments to my grave because that's really what it's all about. That isn't what we were trying to do. We were just trying to make people laugh. But if you got something from that, you know, again, Tim will tell you, your dad will tell you, you know, they'd say, ladies and gentlemen, we got a comedy team and they didn't know who was coming up. And we'd walk out on stage and you go, hush. What the hell is this all about? You know, <laughs> And your routine itself. I mean, I remember as a kid, because, of course, Tim and I would listen to the albums, but the how would you like to be black for a day? <laughs> you, I mean, your material, you all were bold. You know, you all really stepped out there with the material and challenging people to think about how they thought about other races. And stereotypes and putting people in boxes. You all were trying to remove the boxes. Truthfully, I would like to think that that's what we, but we were just trying to make people laugh. You know, we, I I say in my one man show, you know, about when I, and I have a one man show I do called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's a 90 minute show. But I talk about the year 1969 when I, when I go through the chronology of my life about Mm -hmm. me and your, your dad and I becoming a comedy team. And I say the year was 1969. The Jets were Super Bowl champions. I go through all that kind of stuff, you know. And I say, after it shows all the Tim and Tom years and what we did and what what, what happened, I end up saying, once upon a time in America, there was a young black man and a young white man who were so idealistic and so naive. They honestly believed if they could just get people to sit down and laugh together, maybe, maybe they could live together. I wonder if that day will ever come again. That's how I end that, you know. Mm, yeah. I did an album in front of an all-black audience. You know, white comics would say to me, you, you did an album in front of an all-black audience? Well, I, 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 how could you do that? How did you? I, I always have the same answer. What color is laughter? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. When Tim and I made up our mind we were going to go become a comedy team, my only connection to show business, and Tim didn't have one either, was in my hometown, Harvey, Illinois, there was a black singing group called the Dells. They had 
Oh, what a night, stay in my corner. I think they had eight or nine gold records and they still lived in Harvey. And the, I knew them all. I grew up with them. They were older than I, three, I, three years older than I. But Marvin, the lead singer, lived across the street from me when I was growing up. So I said to Tim, let's go over and talk to Marvin. And even he said, you know the Dells? I said, yeah. Oh, let's. So we go over to Marvin's house and we, you know, Marvin, big old gruff guy. And he, we're telling him we want to become a comedy team. He said, oh, man, what a great idea. And he was giving us all kinds of encouragement. And he great. And as we left his home that day, Tim and I were walking out to the car and he said, we had our backs turned and going to get in the car. And he said, Hey, Hey y'all, you know, they're going to try to break you up. You know that, don't you? And we turned around. So what he said, you know, they're going to try to break you up. I said, who are you talking about? He said, people, it's a game people play called divide and conquer. He said, they can't stand to see certain people get along. And so they'll divide and conquer you. They'll come to you, Tim. They're going to say, you don't need that white boy. You can do this by yourself. What are you doing with that white boy? You're funnier than that white boy. And then Tom, they're going to come to you and say the same thing. You don't need that brother. You know, but get, get rid of him, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, and, and he said, watch out for that. There are people out there who will not like the fact that you're getting along on both sides. So right. anyhow, that's Tim and I got in the car that night, said that day will never happen and all that stuff. Of course, years later, there was a woman that broke us up. <laughs> but we, won't, <laughs> we, we won't talk about that. But that had nothing to do with, with yeah, uh, race. Is it in the book? <laughs> no, not in that book. Is it? I'm not that hard. <laughs> but again, that's the game, folks, media, they're politically yeah. charged. And they politically succeed because we are divided. And they'll do everything they can to keep us divided. Don't don't let that happen. Don't let them turn you into victims. I, I, I tell this all the time. You were born a victor. You're a victor. You're a winner. Don't let them preach to you that you're a victim. Because if they, if you're a victim, then they can control you. See, victors can't be controlled. We say, no, we think for ourselves, you know, and, and, and that, that's what I say to all that. You know, I feel like Forrest Gump. And, and that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Winning is an attitude. Whether a dreamer, visionary, or success story, we all have our share of failures. That's life. Think about anyone you've read about or know personally. No one, not a single human being, has always won. Winning is about resilience and having the ability to come back from hardship. How beautiful, how strong is your heart? The Comedy Store you organized the Comedy Store crew strike. Mm. You're very good friends with David Letterman, Jay Leno, Tim Reed, Paul Mooney, Robin Williams, John Witherspoon. We can go on and on. But you organized the strike and had a background in that work advocating from Chicago with the Teamsters. You've been in the business of show for 51 years now. You've done a lot. You've seen it all. And you once told me how you don't doubt talent, but you doubt if they can handle it and how for every 100 folks that handle adversity, only one can handle success. Do you recall that? Let's talk yes. about that. Well, you know, for every hundred men that can handle adversity, only one can handle success has been written, but it, it's true because 
along with success comes a responsibility to remain successful. And that's a tremendous yes. responsibility. And, and the ego, you get ego driven. I dare say, mm-hmm. and we're digressing here, that Will Smith is going through that. That this mm-hmm. man, I watched him that night on the Academy Awards, the stress this man is under. And it, yes. it wasn't the anxiety of, am I going to win the Academy Award or not? There's something deeper in there. I, I pray this is not true, but I think in the next four or five months, Will Smith is going to have some kind of a come to Jesus, a mental breakdown sort of situation because he's under a tremendous amount of stress to do what he did that night was unconscionable. But I don't think he's that kind of man, but he did it. Yeah. He did yes. it. And, and, and uh, there are people in prison who were perfect citizens. And for 10 seconds, they made a dumb mistake and they spend the rest of their life in prison. 10 yeah. seconds of this wonderful life that if you could go back, you would change, you know. So I think he's yeah. under a tremendous amount of stress. I do too. Uh, <clears throat> I agree and, but, but anyhow, going back to what you're saying is that there's two subjects there. One was that subject about adversity and success. But the yeah. other is, is that the, the comedy store, when I first went there, all of us went there, we didn't get paid. We were grateful to have a place to showcase our talent. And Mitzi mm-hmm. Shore gave us that opportunity. And, and mm-hmm. I will always be in, grateful to her. And in fact, I'm going to the comedy store 50th anniversary and, and oh. I'll, I'll be back there to celebrate that, you know, anyhow, oh. then she became very successful and she opened up the, uh, from the Hollywood store, a comedy store. She opened up the Westwood and then San Diego and she started making a lot of money. By mm-hmm. this time I had done the tonight show. I'm in Las Vegas. I'm doing, <clears throat> I'm doing, after I did my tonight show, I'm doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I'm the only white comic to do Soul Train. I'm doing, uh, I didn't know that. Uh, oh yeah, I did Soul Train <laughs> twice. Uh, 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 but anyhow, but I, I and also I'm doing $20,000 Pyramid. I'm doing Match Game. I'm doing all these shows. I'm touring with Sammy Davis. I'm successful. I come back to the comedy store whenever I came off the road to try out new material to do my next mm-hmm. tonight show or something. I go there one night and they put us in the main room. Uh, normally they were in the main room. Mitzi bought another section of the comedy store. Uh, she has with the original room where we all worked, seated like 110 people. Now the main room seated 400 people. She would let Rodney Dangerfield come in there and get the door or Jackie Mason or whoever, and they would get the door. If they charged mm-hmm. $20 at the door, they would get it. They'd make 10000 or more, and she would get the drinks and the, and the, the food. So anyhow. I come off the road and I think I'm going to try out new material in the original room. They put me in the main room. I'm on stage with Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Gallagher, Michael Keaton, you know, mm-hmm. all these, they're all newcomers, but I was already doing shows at that time, but I'm in the main room. I'm going, wow. It's like, I'm back in Vegas here, you know, but I didn't think much of it. Afterward, Jay Leno, we're all having a breakfast at Cantor's, a restaurant on Fairfax in LA. And Jay comes in saying, Hey, we ought to be paid. You know, she's paying those other the stars. Maybe it took five of us to fill that room, but we filled that room. So they decide they're going to have a meeting, all the comedians. Well, if you ever go to a meeting with 110 comedians, it's like utter chaos. You know, and, <laughs> and they were so disorganized. But I listened because they're my friends, but I'm making money. I, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. But mm-hmm. then they, the only thing they decided was have a second meeting. I went to the second meeting. They were disorganized again. I got up on stage. I said, look, I had been in the JCs with your dad. I knew how to conduct a meeting. Robert's mm-hmm. rules of order. I knew, you know, uh, all those kind. Of, and so I helped organize them, get them organized. And once you got them organized, they were a, 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 a force to be reckoned with. They were, mm-hmm. these kids were coming out of colleges, university, bright kids. Once you got them organized, committees and subcommittees. Anyhow, long story short, Mitzi refused to pay. They decided to go on strike. 
I kept mm-hmm. negotiating with Mitchie, trying to stop this. You know, and, and I once went to her and I said, Mitchie, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. Charge $6. Let the comedians have that $1. You know, and, and, and if, if 100 people show up, they get to spend 100 bucks for the night. If 500 people show up, they get to spend 500 bucks. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. I walked out of there numb. I thought it was about money. If it was about money, we could resolve it. Right. It was about control. And 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 uh, oh, she just wow. felt that that's her place, and she controlled it, and she was going to run it the way she wanted. Well, it turned into an eight-week strike. I had six dates with Sammy Davis Jr., over $50,000 worth of work that I had to turn down because, oh, unfortunately, man. I have a problem. When I was a little boy, if I got into a fight, I wanted to win. I didn't want to get into a fight, but if I got into a fight, I wanted to win. I wouldn't quit till I won. I I, uh, I, if I played basketball, football, whatever it was, once the game started, I wanted to win and I, I would almost want to die to win. You know, I wouldn't give up. So now yeah. I'm in this fight. I called mm-hmm. Sammy and told him, Sammy said, Tommy, I understand you're still my guy. And when this is over with, you're back on the road with me. But I gave up a lot of work and, and, and it took eight weeks. And finally, uh, it was over and it was ugly and and uh, mm. and one of the kids committed suicide afterward because he couldn't get back on the comedy store and it's a part of my life that i that i uh you know i i became in hollywood they, i was like james hoffa you know <laughs> All of, i just wanted to help my friends but now i'm yeah. jimmy hoffa you know and uh right. anyhow, but it's over, it's over with and and, uh, and i'm glad and i'm glad i was a part of it and today comedians are being paid all over the country in comedy clubs you know where do you see the future of comedy? Well, one thing, I went on stage Saturday night at the Laugh Factory, and I said, uh, and I know some of you are watching TV, but I want to clear some things up. Comedy is not a contact sport. And then I said, when you walked in here tonight, you were assigned a seat, not a weight division. And, then, and, they, <laughs> and, and they all laughed. And I said, and this is a year of healing, so hands are for clapping, not slapping, you know. And uh, <laughs> You know, it's changed so dramatically since I started. <clears throat> you could yeah. not swear on stage when I started. You, mm. in, we're in show business. That's two words, show and business. So yeah. in order to, in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you have been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but that show established you. So as business people, you say, well, how do I get on the Tonight Show? You watched the Tonight Show and saw what mm-hmm. the other comedians are doing. They were writing material that can make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Clean material. You couldn't say hell. You couldn't say go to hell. You couldn't say anything like that. So television was this big in those days. You know, it was ABC, mm-hmm. NBC, CBS. When cable came along, you could say whatever you wanted to say, you know. So yeah. My my point of all that is, is that that's how dramatically comedy's changed from then to now. Now, you could do 20 Tonight Shows and people probably wouldn't know who you are, but it's a social media. That's where mm-hmm. you go. Dane Cook, uh, a, a, a wonderful comedian, he didn't do all those shows. He went on MySpace when it first came out. And when MySpace came out, he started putting funny things on there. He started filling up 15,000-seat arenas. Through social media, you can reach Mm -hmm. more people on social media if if you get the right following, as you know. So that's where Mm -hmm. the comics are going today. And and they're working, we call it blue. When you work dirty in my day, they said, oh, he works blue or she works Mm -hmm. blue. You know, and and, uh, so today, 
uh, uh, the females and the male comics are saying things that you know that people would you know spin in their graves you know the the, the mm-hmm. comics of yesteryear hearing that i can't believe you're doing that material but there aren't there's only one rule in comedy tori be funny that's the only rule in comedy <laughs> be funny yeah that's the only rule you know and the other thing too is you're not going to make everybody love you. Sammy Davis Jr. had a sign hanging in his dressing room that I loved. It said, I don't know the meaning of success, but I do know the meaning of failure. It's when I try to make everybody love me. You can't do that. If you're a bartender, a truck driver, a bricklayer, you can't make everybody love you. And if you're a comedian, God knows you're not going to make everybody love you, you know, but you can go out there and just try to be as funny as you can, you know. Uh, it's the greatest gift on the planet to be a stand-up comedian. And I say this because, mm-hmm. and Tori, you and I have had these discussions. Laughter yeah. is healing. That's no longer a theory. It used to be a theory. It's no longer a theory. We have always yeah. known that laughter is psychologically a deterrent. The brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. So if you're watching a comedian or listening to a comedy album, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. But now because of Norman Cousins, who wrote the book Laughter Math, and he wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness, mm-hmm. um, he had a terminal illness. He was in the hospital. Doctors told him he was going to die. He had a very bad heart condition and from years of stress. And he laid in bed and he thought, if stress made me ill, negative input stress made me ill, then positive input should make me well. So he checked out of the hospital and he'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, the Marx Brothers, comedy albums. He didn't watch evening news. He wouldn't read the newspapers. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Because of him, UCLA did research on what happens to the human body when you laugh. And they found out after a hearty laugh that the brain releases endorphins into the bloodstream, chemicals into the bloodstream. That's why after a hearty laugh with tears running down your eyes and you go, oh, after a big laugh, you you feel the sense of well-being because your body has gone through a chemical change. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent. It's physiologically therapeutic. So comedians are physicians of the soul. And you can call me Dr. Uncle Tom if you want. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but that's why it's the greatest profession on the planet. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, what, what service to humanity is the greatest work of life. That was one of the J.C., yes. part of the J.C. Creed when your dad and I were in it. Service mm-hmm. to humanity is the best work of life. If you're, whatever you do for a living, if it's a service to humanity, that people are better off for having had your service, you will excel into that service. Comedians, they're making America laugh over at some of their, you know, shortcomings and stupidities or, but, or whatever. They're in the business of healing people in so many ways. That's why I tell young comedians, this is the greatest profession on the planet. Don't tarnish it. Don't destroy it with alcohol and drugs. You know, this is the most important part of, of, as a comedian, this mind you have. Don't destroy that, you know. Hmm. I love that. Mm. Physicians of the soul. Tom Dreesen is the comedian's comedian. Anybody who has worked the comedy circuit in Hollywood knows this name. My production team and I like to refer to him as the last living member of the Rat Pack which included, of course, his mentor, Frank Sinatra, and such legends as Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. In the late 1970s, he took his experience in Chicago with the Teamsters and applied them to the Comedy Store, making lasting changes in the lives of some of the world's most magical entertainers. He's worked with Johnny Carson, David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Tim Reed, 
Mark Marin, and so many others. And his secret elixir is a good heart. The Comedy Store, Laugh Factory, all who have worked with him love him. All who hear him laugh. He is one of the greats. He is a good man. For me, I simply adore this man. Yes, my Uncle Tom. Thank you for listening to Here's to Life with Tori Reid, executive produced by Patrick Howell. We hope you've enjoyed today's show. Here's to Life with Tori Reid was brought to you in part by The Hilton Sacramento Art and West in Sacramento, California, is committed to creating a safe and relaxing experience, including delivery of a clean stay from check-in to check-out. Located a couple of exits from downtown Sacramento and California's capital, our hotel provides a world-class stay, amenities, and rooms at the center of the California experience. California is a world-class economy with visionaries, doers, and dream catchers at its heart. Our mission, as with Here's to Life and Getting Deals Done, is the highest possible expression of excellence, business moxie, humanity, and client care. As the world moves at a fast and sometimes hectic pace, we will provide you with a peace of mind. The Hilton Sacramento Art and West is here to make your experience a better one. We look forward to receiving you. I am Ginger Levert, Director of Sales and Marketing at the Hilton Sacramento Art and West. Our focus is on the customer experience and a pristine excellence. When you travel to Sacramento, stay with us and I guarantee your peace of mind. Check back with our page, here's to lifeeveryday.com for new episodes. And if you like this show, don't forget to hit subscribe and be sure to leave a comment, rate, or review wherever you're listening and share it if you can. So here's to life today and every day. So long for now. <laughs>